Chapter Two of A Cabinet Secret by Guy Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Two. My arrangements were completed, and in spite of De Belleville's entreaty that I should remain for at least another day, I was adamant in my determination to leave Paris for England that night. In view of the existing state of affairs there, it would be a truism to say that there was much to be done before the assembling of Parliament. It behoved us all, we knew, to put our shoulders to the wheel and to do the utmost to help our country in her hour of need. Accordingly, the appointed moment found me at the railway station, whither my servant had preceded me. Williams is the best courier as well as the best servant in existence. And when I reached the platform, it was to find my compartment reserved for me, my books and papers spread out to my hand, my cap and traveling rug in readiness, and the faithful man himself on guard at the door. It only wanted three minutes to starting time, and already the various functionaries were busying themselves with intending passengers. It looks as if we shall have a full train, Williams, I said, as I stood at the door gazing down the platform. Let us hope we shall have a good crossing. The weather report is favorable, sir, he replied. I returned to the other end of the carriage to look for my cigar case, and was in the act of cutting a weed when I heard William's voice raised as if in expostulation. I must beg your pardon, sir, he was saying in his curious French, that no experience ever makes any better or any worse, but this is a reserved compartment. But, my good fellow, there is no more room in the train, said a voice I instantly recognized. Pray speak to your master, and I am sure he will not deny our request. I walked to the door where this conversation was being carried on to discover the lady and the two men, who have already figured so prominently in my narrative, standing upon the platform. I am afraid we are taking an unwarrantable liberty in asking such a favor from you, the elder man began, but by our carelessness we are placed in a dilemma. We omitted to secure our compartment, and now the train is so full that we cannot procure seats. It is most necessary for us to cross to London tonight, and unless you will go so far out of your way as to permit us to share your carriage with you, I fear we must remain behind. The train is about to start, even now. Though I had no desire for their company, courtesy forbade that I should insist upon my rights. Nothing remained for it, therefore, but for me to submit with as much graciousness as I could assume. Pray step in, I said. It is the fault of the railway authorities, who should provide sufficient accommodation for travellers. May I ask which seat you prefer, madame? With an expression of her thanks, she chose the corner at the further end of the compartment, and opposite the corner Williams had prepared for me. Her companions followed her, and a moment later the train moved slowly out of the station, and our journey had commenced. That journey will be remembered by two of our number, at least, so long as they can recollect anything. I am not going to pretend that I felt 
at my ease for the first part of it. Far from it. I fancy the Countess must have noticed this, for she did not address me for some time, vouchsafing me an opportunity of becoming accustomed to the novelty of the situation. Then, feeling that it was incumbent on me to do the honors of the compartment, I offered her her choice of papers. She chose one, and when she had opened it, assured me that I was at liberty to smoke, should I care to do so. Her companions had also made themselves at home, so that by the time our train ran through Alessonoy, we might have been said to have been on comparatively intimate terms with each other. I have an idea that my father and I had the pleasure of meeting an old friend of yours lately, said the Countess, when the station to which I have just referred was a thing of the past, and we were speeding on towards the sea. Really, I replied, with some little astonishment, pray, who might that friend be? The Duke of Rotherhithe, she returned, and, as she said it, she neatly folded the paper she had been reading, and laid it on the seat beside her. A friend of mine, indeed, I answered. I fancied, however, that he was yachting in the Mediterranean? Exactly, he was. We met him quite by chance in Constantinople, and, finding that we were anxious to reach Naples as quickly as possible, he offered to convey us thither in his yacht. I remember that he spoke most kindly of you. The dear fellow, I replied, we were at school together, and afterwards at the varsity. So easily impressed is the human mind by former associations, that the mere fact that the Countess de Venezza and her father had lately been the guests of my old friend, Rotherhithe, was sufficient to make me treat them in an entirely different fashion to what I had hitherto done. Until that time I had rather prided myself upon being a somewhat sceptical man of the world, but now I was giving splendid proofs of my peculiar susceptibility. There was, however, a grain of suspicion still lingering about me. I accordingly proceeded to indirectly question her concerning my friend, and, as I noticed that she answered without hesitation or any attempt at concealment, my doubts faded away until they vanished altogether. We talked of the Princess Barobador with the familiarity of old friends. Rotherhithe's antipathy to those whom he described as foreigners afforded us conversation for another five minutes, while the malapropisms, if I may coin a word, of his head steward were sufficient to carry us through two more stations without a single break in the conversation. We discussed the various ports of the Mediterranean, ran up to Aswan in a Dahabia, and afterwards made a pilgrimage to Sinai together. The Countess was a witty conversationalist, and, as I discovered, a close observer of all that went on around her. Her father and cousin, beyond putting in a word now and again, scarcely spoke, but seemed absorbed in their books and papers. At last we reached Calais, and it became necessary for us to leave the train. It was a beautiful evening. The sea was as smooth as glass, while there was not enough wind to stir the pennant on the steamer's masthead. "'I am sure we cannot thank you enough for permitting us to share your carriage,' said the Countess, as we left the train and prepared to go on 
board the steamer. Had it not been for your kindness, I fear we should still be in Paris, instead of being well on our way to England. I returned something appropriate to this remark. Then, side by side, we boarded the steamer. Since you have been yachting with the Duke of Rotherhithe, I said, when we had gained the deck, it is only fair to suppose that you are a good sailor, Countess? Oh, yes, she answered with a little laugh. I am an excellent sailor. But forgive my asking the question. How did you become aware of my identity? I happened to hear your name at the hotel this morning, I replied. It was told me after I had restored the bangle you so nearly lost. At this moment, her father put in an appearance and caused a diversion by inquiring after the safety of her jewel case, which, it appeared, stood in continual danger of being lost. A few seconds later, the boat was under way, and we had said good-bye to French soil. As we left the place of embarkation, it seemed to me that my companion gave a little sigh, and noticing that it was followed by a slight shiver, I inquired whether she felt cold. She replied in the negative, though at the same time she drew her furs a little closer round her. "'I wonder whether certain places affect you as they do me,' she said, when the French port lay well astern and we were heading for the white cliffs of England. "'It is strange that I never leave Calais without undergoing a decided feeling of depression. I don't know why it should be so. It is a fact, nevertheless.' "'I hope it is not the thought of visiting England that causes it,' I replied with an attempt at jocularity. "'You have visited our country before, of course.' "'Very often,' she answered. "'We have many friends in England, in the list of whom I hope you will permit me some day to number myself.' I continued with an eagerness that was not at all usual with me. "'I shall be very pleased.' She returned quietly, and then looked away across the still water to where a French pilot cutter lay becalmed half a mile or so away. An hour later we reached Dover. Just as we were entering the harbor, the Countess's father approached me and thanked me effusively for my kindness in permitting them to share my carriage from Paris. But you must not let my generosity, such as it is, cease there, I replied. I hope you will also share my carriage to London, that is to say, if the Countess is not already too tired of my society. It would be ungenerous to say so if I were, she answered with a smile. But if you, on your side, do not feel that we have trespassed too far already, I am sure we shall be only too glad to accept your kind offer. The custom authorities, having been satisfied as to the innocence of our baggage, we took our seats in the carriage which had been reserved for me. My indispensable Williams made his appearance with an armful of papers, and then we started upon the last stage of our journey. When I had handed the Countess a copy of the Globe, I selected a Pall Mall for myself and turned to the page containing the latest war news. From what I found there, there could be no doubt that the situation was hourly increasing in danger. There were complications on every side, and the position was not rendered easier by the fact that a certain number 
of prominent politicians were endeavoring to make capital out of the difficulties of the government. I suppose there can now be no doubt as to the probability of war, said Count Reifenberg, looking up from his paper as he spoke. None whatever, I should say, I answered. If the papers are to be believed, the clouds are blacker and heavier than they have yet been. I fear the storm must burst ere long. The Countess did not take any part in our conversation, but I fancied that she was listening. Not feeling any desire to continue the discussion with the younger man, I returned to my paper, leaving him to follow my example. A few minutes later the Countess put down her globe and sat looking out upon the country through which we were passing. I see they have captured another notorious anarchist in Naples, I said, after we had been sitting in silence for some minutes. So far as can be gathered from the report given here, the arrest is likely to prove important in more respects than one. Indeed, said the Countess, looking steadily at me as she spoke, the police are certainly becoming more expeditious in the matter of arrests. The only difficulty they experience is the finding of any substantial crime against their victims when they have brought about their capture. Pray, who is this particular man? An individual rejoicing in the romantic name of Luigi Ferreira, I answered. It appears that they have been endeavoring to lay their hands upon him for some time past. Until now, however, he has managed to slip through their fingers. Poor fellow! said the countess, still in the same even voice. I hope it will not prejudice you against me, but I cannot help feeling a little sympathy for people, however misguided they may be, who imperil their own safety for the sake of bringing about what they consider the ultimate happiness of others. Then, as though the matter no longer interested her, she returned to the perusal of her paper. Her cousin had all this time been drumming with his fingers in an impatient manner, so I thought, upon the glass of the window beside which he sat. For my own part, I scarcely knew what to make of this young man. Though he did not show it openly, I could not help thinking that he was jealous of the attention I was paying his fair cousin. As the idea crossed my mind, I remembered the previous afternoon, when I had sat in the portico of the hotel, speculating as to the nationality and lives of the people about me. How little I had thought, then, that twenty-four hours later would find me seated with them in an English railway carriage, discussing the fortune of another man, with whom neither I nor they, for the matter of that, at least, so I then supposed, had even the remotest connection. It was not until we were approaching the end of our journey that I spoke to my vis-a-vis -vis concerning her stay in London. We shall in all probability remain in London for some three or four months, she said. I hope, if you can spare the time, that you will call upon me. I have taken Wiltshire House, by the way, and shall be most pleased to see you. I must confess that her announcement caused me a considerable amount of surprise. All things considered, it was rather a strange coincidence, for only that morning I had received a letter from my sister, Ethelwyn, who, as you are doubtless aware, is the Countess of Brewarden, in which occurred the following significant passage. 
Ethelwyn, I might here remark, is somewhat given to the florid style. Existence is now altogether a blank. The dream of my life, Wiltshire House, has vanished. Some rich foreigner has taken it, and in consequence George, my brother-in-law, and I have quarrelled desperately. He declares it is a good thing it is let, as he couldn't think of it. He, moreover, avers that it would cost a king's ransom to keep up. Nevertheless, I shall detest the foreigner, whoever she or he may be. I can scarcely say how I derived the impression, but, until that moment, I had not supposed my fair friend to be the possessor of any great wealth. It was the more surprising, therefore, to hear that she was not only a rich woman, but also that she was to be the temporary mistress of one of the most beautiful and expensive dwellings in the metropolis. Needless to say, I did not let her become aware of the surprise she had given me, but contented myself with thanking her and expressing the hope that shortly I should be able to do myself the honor of calling upon her. You won't allow your public duties to make you forget your promise to come and see me, I hope, said the Countess, as we shook hands. You may be quite sure that I shall not, I replied. Then au revoir, and many thanks for the kindness you have shown us. It has given me the greatest possible pleasure, I answered, and, as I said it, I had a guilty remembrance of my uncharitable feelings that morning, when I had discovered that my privacy was destined to be disturbed. Yet so pleasantly had the time passed that I felt as if I had known the Countess for years instead of hours. When I reached my house, it was to find everything just as I had left it. A cheerful fire blazed in my study. The latest evening papers lay, cut and folded, upon a table beside my favorite chair. A subdued light shone above the table in the dining-room adjoining, and everything denoted the care and comfort which a master possessing good servants has a right to expect. Having removed the stains of travel and changed my attire, I sat down to dinner. Afterwards, spent an hour skimming my correspondence. Then... To fill up the time, I ordered a cab and drove to my favorite club. Though I had only been absent from England a short time, and had not been further than Paris, I discovered that I had a vast amount of news to hear. Men imparted their information to me as if I had that day returned from Central Africa or the Australian bush. Young Ponsford, the member for Banford, for which place his father had sat before him, was good enough to give me his views on the crisis. His complaint was that no one would listen to him, and, in consequence, he was only too glad to find someone who required bringing up to date. That I happened to be a cabinet minister as well as an old friend made no sort of difference. "'By Jove, I envy you,' he said, as he lit a fresh cigar. "'I can tell you, if you play your cards carefully, you'll be no end of a swell over this business. Why on earth couldn't I have had such an opportunity? For the simple reason that you know too much, my boy, said a man in the guards, who happened to be sitting near. Haven't you heard that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? They know Manderville's safe on a secret. 
so they gave him the job. What's the use of a secret, unless there's some mystery about it? By the way, talking of mysteries, what's this about Wiltshire House? Somebody tells me that it has been let to the prettiest woman in Europe. Do any of you know anything about her? Pomsford was as well informed upon this as upon all other subjects. Of course, he replied, the news is as old as the hills. I heard it from Bill Kingsbury, who was in the agent's shop, or office, whatever they call it, when the business was being arranged. But it's all nonsense about her being the prettiest woman in Europe. Hailed from Jamaica, I believe, has to own curly hair, and to just one touch of the tar-brush. Ponsford seems to know all about her, said another man. He always is well informed, however, upon any matter, whatever it may be. If there's going to be a war, the house ought to vote a sum sufficient to send him out, in order that he may keep the authorities posted on the progress of affairs. You've missed your vocation, Ponsford. You'd make an ideal war correspondent. Too much imagination, said the man in the guards. Military matters must be taken seriously. But nobody has answered my question yet. Who is this lady who has taken Wiltshire House? I have already told you, said Ponsford sulkily. I never came across such a set of unbelievers. Elderly, colored, and of West Indian origin, said the guardsman. It doesn't sound well. I could stand it no longer. For goodness sake, I put in. Don't go about the town spreading that report. I assure you, Ponsford is, as usual, altogether out of it. How do you know that? asked Ponsford suspiciously. Because I happen to have had the good fortune to travel with the lady from Paris today, I replied, with just that little touch of satisfaction the position warranted. And you kept quiet about it said another man. Well, you are a reticent beggar, I must say. Don't you know this has been one of the mysteries of the town? My goodness, man, you shan't escape from this room until you have told us all about her. Who is she? What is she? What is her name? How much money has she? Above all, is she pretty? She is the Countess de Venezia, I replied. Italian, I should say rich since she has taken wiltshire house and as for her personal appearance well when you see her you will be able to judge of that for yourselves excellent said the guardsman i prefer manderville's report to yours ponsford is she married a widow i fancy i replied still better if she is kind to me i will make her reputation, and Wiltshire House shall be the smartest caravansaray in London. Not shooting in your wood, Manderville, I hope. I wish to goodness you men wouldn't spend your time so much in inventing new slang, I answered, but some of you seem to have nothing else to do. Now that I have satisfied your curiosity, I shall go home to bed. The early bird catches the early news. In these days, one lives for the morning papers. Ponsford saw another opportunity. Talking of morning papers, he began, but before he had finished the sentence, I had left the room. 
Being tired when I reached home, I went straight to bed. Remembering my experience of the previous night, I was determined that this one should make up for it. To my disappointment, however, I discovered that, tired though I was, sleep would not visit my eyelids. I was as wide awake when I had been two hours in bed as I was when I entered my room. Once more, as on the previous night, I was haunted with the remembrance of the Countess's eyes. Do what I could, I could not get them out of my mind. Tired at last of tumbling and tossing, and thoroughly angry with myself and the world in general, I rose, donned a dressing gown, and went into the small study that adjoins my bedroom. The fire was not quite extinguished, and with some little coaxing I was able to induce it to burn again. Taking a book, I drew up my chair, seated myself in it, and tried to read. I must have done so to some purpose, for after a time I fell asleep. Possibly it may have been due to the fact that I had had no rest on the previous night, and that my mind was naturally much occupied with the gravity of England's situation, and the part I had to play in the coming strife. At any rate, my dreams were not only vivid, but decidedly alarming. I dreamt that I was in a transport en route to the Cape, and that the vessel struck a rock, and sank with all the troops on board. There was no time to get out the boats, and, in company with some hundreds of others, I was precipitated into the water. While we were still struggling with the waves, a lifeboat made her appearance, and to my intense astonishment, standing in the bows, was no less a person than the Countess de Venezza. What was stranger still, she carried in her hand a heavy spear, or harpoon, with which, whenever a drowning man approached the boat, she stabbed him in the back, laughing as she did so. Then, by means of that wonderful mechanical ingenuity with which the theatres of the land of dreams are furnished, the scene changed to a lonely plain at the foot of a rugged mountain range. A battle had been fought upon it, and the dead and wounded still lay where they had fallen. So real did it appear to me that, when I recognized here and there the faces of friends, I found myself wondering what I should say to their loved ones when I returned to England. Suddenly, in the weird light, for the moon was shining above the mountain peaks, there appeared from among the rocks on the further side of the plain a woman whose face I instantly recognized. With stealthy steps, she left her hiding place and descended to where the wounded lay thickest. In her hand, she carried the same spear that I remembered in my previous dream, and with it she stabbed every man who remained alive. So terrible was the expression upon her face as she did so, that I turned away from her in loathing and disgust. When I looked again, she was bending over the body of a man who still lived, but who was bleeding from a deep wound in his side. Picture my consternation when I discovered that he was none other than the guardsman who had been so persistent in his inquiries that night concerning her. As I watched, for I was unable to move hand or foot to save him, a low moan escaped his lips, followed by an appeal for water. With the same expression of fiendish rage upon her face that I had noticed before, she raised the spear, and was about to plunge it into his breast, when, with a cry, I awoke, 
to find the sun streaming into the room, and my respectable Williams standing before me. "'Good gracious, Williams, how you startled me,' I said. "'What on earth am I doing here?' "'Ah, I remember. I could not sleep, so I came in to get a book. "'I suppose I must have fallen asleep over it. "'What news is there this morning?' "'There was an air of mystery about Williams "'that I knew heralded the announcement of some extraordinary information. "'Yes, sir,' he said. "'There is some important news.' The papers do say that war is declared. End of chapter 2